Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, I'll be talking with Adriana Helbig about her book, Hip Hop Ukraine, Music, Race, and African Migration, published by Indiana University Press. Welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Adriana. Thank you for having me. Well, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm fascinated by the way that you wove together the particular story of African migrants and hip-hop music in Ukraine with larger discussions of race, of ethnic and political identities, and of immigration in Europe. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today about this book. But before we get to that, uh, would you give us a brief introduction uh, to yourself and tell us how you became interested in studying Ukraine? I am a music professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I have two major research projects. One is on Romani music, and the other is on hip-hop. And the hip-hop actually stems out of the Romani music project, because I was in Ukraine um, at the time of the Orange Revolution and studying Romani issues um, in Western Ukraine. And at that time, I actually had to stop my research, but I happened to be in Kiev during the protests. And this was the first time that I saw African musicians rapping in Ukrainian dressed in embroidered costumes, um, you know, being part of uh, the whole political process in Ukraine. And so I immediately just sent out a few grants and they all came through. And that became this, this project that you're reading now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's always exciting to hear scholars who have can stumbled across a, a subject or a topic, and uh, it can make for a really exciting uh, dive into a research project. And in order to can set the stage, define hip hop for us. What what is hip hop music? Well, I will just go back and say that um, I grew up in an African-American neighborhood in Newark, and my family uh, are immigrants from Ukraine after World War II. And so for me, the reason why I reacted so strongly is because those two things never never came together for me uh, growing up. So we had the African-American um, culture, and then you had the Ukrainian way of living in diaspora, which meant like sort of tunnel vision where you're going through American culture. So my friends always laugh that I actually have very little pop culture reference, and they were very shocked when I told them that I would be researching hip-hop. So for me, the way that I've understood hip-hop, I mean, it really is uh, rooted in in very much, uh, you know, a, a human rights uh, type of discourse, and it's a way that um, musicians have been uh, claiming power, um, agency. Uh, it has all different aspects. Whether you're talking about rap, DJ culture, um, you know, breakdancing, you know, the whole aesthetic aspect. Um, when you start looking at it in other parts of the world, it'll like, for instance, in Ukraine, it includes BMX biking as well. So it becomes a class issue as well. Those in Ukraine who have access to music from abroad are usually the ones that are the rising middle class. 
And so um, hip hop in Ukraine actually became uh, sort of the music of the cosmopolitan youth. And I was astounded to learn that Ukraine is the fourth largest in-migration receiving nation state in the world after the U.S., Russia, and Germany. So that's pretty amazing. Who is immigrating to Ukraine and why? Yeah, those are those are really intense narratives. And like I said, you know, in terms of statistics, I'm not really quite sure whether all of that is accurate even now, 10 years later, uh, now that we're... Um, really looking at this from, from different perspectives because, you know, those are, those are numbers that are generated uh, based on legal um, immigration. What, what, what we actually don't know is the extent of people that are just moving transitory people. But just geographically, Ukraine is in a position where it does border the European Union on so many levels, right, on so many borders with Poland. And then as, as the, uh, uh, the European Union expands, um, and so then from the eastern side, remember that the borders were extremely porous uh, with Russia. So who was coming into Russia? Where are they coming from? So whether it's uh, China, uh, more in terms of uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, um, uh, significant populations are growing of those two groups um, in Ukraine. But where they're actually coming from, that's, you know, you've got everything from the Middle East to uh, Africa, and, and they're using Ukraine as, as sort of a jumping board to try to get into Europe. And you have now a, a larger groups that are starting to stay. Well, before we talk specifically about the African migrant experience in Ukraine and what it is like for Africans who are coming to Ukraine today, I think we should step back and get some historical perspective on music and black identity in the Soviet Union, which of course included Ukraine and shaped some of the contemporary contemporary attitudes. So can you give us some of that history? Absolutely. Um, I think we can even go back uh, more so, you know, into the Russian Empire. Uh, it turns out that minstrelsy was was so popular that it was um, very much, you know, part of the aesthetic, not just in, in the Russian Empire, but throughout the world, um, going into the 1800s. So, uh, you know, 18, 1900s. So when, when you're looking at um, blackness, and we actually can, can trace a very close friendship uh, to one of Ukraine's most famous poets, Taras Shevchenko, um, who had a, uh, a friendship with Ira Aldrich, who was a Shakespearean uh, actor at the time who was traveling around. And this has become like a very popular theme to, to think about. Um, and there have been a lot of theatrical uh, representations of that relationship, uh, for instance, with the Yara Arts Group here in New York that's now traveled back to Ukraine. And so this is now part of the narrative. So if we're looking at this narrative in terms of sort of like a 200-year um, time span, when we get to the Soviet Union era, um, one of the things that grabs people is this idea that initially the Soviet Union was one of, uh, of supposed to be a nation of equality, right? So that this uh, idea of racism, the way that it was exploited here in the United States didn't exist. And so this was going to be this utopian land. So in the 1920s, one of the histories um, out of African-American history that's usually silenced or not um, brought to, to light is this relationship between African-Americans and the Soviet Union, that there was this idea that they were traveling there um, and uh, going to be part of this whole discussion. And many people actually stayed there um, to live. Um, 
What happens, though, is that that notion of blackness was already so ingrained through minstrelsy that on the Soviet side, what they were responding to is, well, are you black enough? Like, are you physically black enough? Um, are you, uh, why don't you sing and dance the way that we, a Soviet, uh, uh, you know, associate all African Americans, right, right? So that stereotype was already so strong by 1920 that we have that constant back and forth already. And it doesn't really change until the 1960s when the Soviet Union starts to expand scholarships into Africa. And they start bringing African students into the Soviet Union to then with the idea to go back to Africa to spread socialist ideologies. And uh, the stereotype then becomes African uh, as student, which is really um, a, a very unique uh stereotype when we're looking at, um, you know, global black stereotypes. So what is like, what is life like for Africans in independent Ukraine today? How are they viewed by Ukrainians? How are they um, integrating or not integrating into Ukrainian society? So there's two stereotypes. And again, I'm, I'm talking in tropes. Um, and both are positive in their own ways. Both have their own drawbacks. So the first is this African as student. So this is so common that anytime you see an African on the streets, uh, usually the first idea is that they're there to study medicine, which is, which is typically the reason why they're there. But that then implies transiency. So this idea that they're here to study and they're, the idea is that they're going to go back. And part of that whole, uh, that, that stereotype actually has to do with Soviet laws, um, that didn't allow Africans to have citizenship, that they were actually forced to go back, um, which there's another story about the children they left behind. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but that is the main one. So the, the, stereotype, um, the stereotype of student. The second now, though, is with this idea of the um, global music industry. So as they're coming out of the United States, the trope of the African-American musician has come back um, into this part of the world. And so now it's actually very typical um, that, that it's, it's like, of course, well, you're the musician. And so this is where the people that I've been working with actually come in. They came to Ukraine as students, but they're actually uh, like building these huge music careers because the, this new generation of Ukrainians is like, but you, you can probably rap and you probably have, um, you know, equal, equal talents to African-Americans. And it seems that there's a, a, a play where Africans are actually playing into this. Um, it's very common uh, that they'll be represented in Ukrainian media as African-Americans, actually. So there's this blurring of blackness between African and African-Americans. Yeah, that was actually something else that I was really interested in, that these are immigrants coming from Africa, and yet the identity mm -hmm. construction that seems to be happening once they're in Ukraine is kind of an appropriation of an African-American identity, and that's also where the hip-hop comes yeah. from. Can you yeah. explore that a little and, more? And yeah, absolutely. And I'm not really quite sure. They don't come with the intention of being immigrants. So those that are coming to Ukraine, the, the groups that I've been working with are actually upper class Africans. So they're coming from urban centers, predominantly male. And the idea is that they are the ones from their families who are going to be getting a higher education and then um, 
the idea is that they that they continue into Europe, right? So there is that transiency still built in. What's been happening, though, because of the political climate and as it's been changing, there's been a, a greater number of people that are saying, well, do we really have to move to Europe? Look at all these draconian laws that are now, uh, you know, coming into play in Europe against, uh, you know, against um, immigrants. Why don't we just stay in Ukraine and be part of this building of this new society? And initially, when Ukraine was in, I'm talking about the Euromaidan and now the subsequent war, because most of uh, the, the people that I'm working with are actually in eastern Ukraine, where a lot of the bigger cities are, the bigger universities are. So they were they ended up in the middle of all of this violence. During the violence, they did not participate in the protests. But now as we're moving into a new phase, what you're starting to see again is actually people who are not musicians, um, but are uh, from Africa that are starting to wear these Ukrainian cos- uh, you know, costumes and be part of this narrative. And the change, the racial, uh, the the climate of on um, racial discourse is actually changing dramatically in Ukraine after this uh, most recent um, revolution in 2014. Can you describe specifically the hip hop scene in Ukraine? Cause I'm sure there's lots of music scenes in uh, Ukraine today and tell us more about the hip hop scene, why it has become more popular. And also you call the hip hop studios sites of socio racial agency. So can you kind of mm-hmm. tie all that together for us? Of course. So the, um, and I'm just, I'm just really enjoying this because one of the things about this particular project is that it has positive outcomes. Uh, and, you know, when you work in Eastern Europe, there's always something that always goes so dramatically wrong that these are good stories and I'm just really happy to share them. So um, on both sides, so for the African um, musicians and for the, uh, the local uh, non-African musicians. The first is that hip hop in Ukraine is actually a relatively new genre. Um, it doesn't really boost itself up until um, the basically the mid to late 90s. And there's a group called Tanakna Maidani Congo, Dance on Congo Square, so indexing um, New Orleans um, in, in a very imagined way. Um, so this particular group uh, from Kharkiv, which is a city um, on the Ukrainian-Russian uh, border in eastern Ukraine, they won a national contest, a music contest. And that was considered to be sort of the first time that hip hop was heard, um, you know, by the masses in Ukraine. And remember that the music industry in Ukraine collapsed along with everything else in the early 1990s. And it was very difficult to get music out. Everything had been centralized via Moscow. Um, you know, musicians, first of all, weren't even making music. And that's, that's one of the issues uh, that I came across in my role. Romani music research that I basically couldn't find Romani gypsy musicians who had their own instruments. They had already sold all of them just to try to uh, make ends meet. So the music industry is, is, was at that point patchy at best. Um, And so once Tanaka Maidani Congo wins, we're starting to see more and more um, Ukrainian musicians get in on this genre. Uh, where it actually hits big is in 2004, 
when the genre becomes sort of the anthem of the revolution. So, Razum nas bahato nas napodolate, that song by Green Jolly, um, that together we are many, we will not be defeated. That was a rap, and it was actually uh, sort of kicked off a whole bunch of other uh, raps and, and hip-hop-inspired uh, music with regard to that particular revolution with a lot of sampling and technology was starting to be used in a different way. Um, and so that's, that's when people, like even grandmothers, were like, of course, you know, that's a rap. You know, so there, there's, it's, it's this really interesting way that, that people now talk about hip-hop. And again, in a very, very positive, but also extremely politicized way. So when you're Can I, I at just want to clarify right now, now these original pan, um, musicians that were using rap, these are Ukrainians. These are they are not, Ukrainians, right? right. So that these right. are not they are uh, Ukrainian. These are not musicians from Africa. These are Ukrainian musicians who are are using right. musical genres. Okay, right, right. And so then, uh, but that 2004 Orange Revolution already started to join all different types of music. It was the first time in probably about 10 years that all musicians ended up in Kyiv. Um, on that stage, uh, performing for protesters, it became a thing. Like, you know, are, are you playing in Kyiv for the Orange Revolution, right? And that's, that's where we started to see, um, you know, a lot of people meet each other, um, a lot of genres blend, and that's when these first two African musicians called Chorno Brutti, um, that I refer to in, in um, the book, that's when they started to meet some of the other musicians. And they're the ones really who kicked off this particular hip-hop, reggae-inspired um, uh, music. Uh, but just to go back, so we already have like these, you know, hip-hop scenes popping up and uh, Africans who started to come in uh, to cities like Kharkiv, where there already was a hip-hop scene, um, they, they, you know, met up with hip-hop musicians and these hip-hop um, recording studios actually started to use these guys as validating factors because the ones coming in from Africa actually had more access to technology, they had more money, and they had more experience at DJs, um, as producers. And what we started to see in these hip-hop studios, which, I mean, really when you start to look at what they actually looked like, they were in basements, um, you know, jeans were hanging on the wall to dampen the sounds. Like these were like a very, very makeshift. These kids were about 18 years old on average. Um, and so you have like this older African, um, you know, musician with more money, with more experience coming in and showing these guys how to do things. So a lot of music actually is inspired by, by African sounds, which are of course inspired by, Af uh, by African American sounds. So there's, there's this whole loop. It's, it's actually almost too complicated to try to dissect. Um, on the flip side, uh, African musicians really needed the safety nets of these uh, friendships that these um, hip hop uh, musicians uh, were providing because the racism at that time was, was really quite high. And so they said that, you know, they were even afraid to walk into the center of town. So, and sometimes they wouldn't be the ones leaving the studio first, right? The white guys would go first, then um, the African would follow, right? It, it was, it was a time, that was very, very bad. 
in Ukraine. Um, and so this is actually really what this, what the book is about. And, and it sort of explains just not just the musical sides of it, but also the complicated transnational, you know, aesthetic experiences, uh, migrant migratory experiences, but also um, the race dynamics as they started to change in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And part of that change is really um, exemplified by the photograph that you have on the cover and what you've already referred to seeing in person is uh, this uh, it's three African musicians, um, hip hop artists who are in Ukrainian national costume. So the women have the flowered wreaths, they're wearing the embroidered shirts. Um, and it, it's such a great photograph. They're smiling, they're happy. Um, and talk more about this kind of Af- Afro Ukrainian fusion and this cross-identification with being um, Black Africans and yet being Ukrainian. So that that photograph, when I saw it, I, mean, I knew it was going to be the book cover. Um, but then came a year of self-doubt. Do we use this as a as a book cover? Because the, the, the one thing I wouldn't want people to think is that we're actually exploiting what this is. I mean, this is so essentialized. This is so, when you look at it, it really is uh, like almost unbelievable, especially for me, again, having grown up in downtown Newark, um, where these two aesthetic features, usually you probably wouldn't find that together ever. Um, but what what's interesting to note is that this type of picture, you probably wouldn't find this type of picture anywhere else in Eastern Europe, except in Ukraine. And that's because Ukrainian identity at that time, uh, or, or actually in the last 20 years, has been so much in flux, right? It's only now after Russia invades that we have a very strong pride in embroidery, that we have a sense of um, revival in the music, that, that people are saying, no, we're, we are Ukrainian, we're not um, this or that or something. You know, like this, this sense of identity was, was very, very fluid, much more fluid and much more undefined than, say, for instance, Poland, which I would actually use as the most extreme example as like, no, we are Polish historically. We know what that means, right? There are, there are kernels of essentialized identities that sort of get wound together. So, to have this openness and to, and they actually, these costumes were given to them by the Kharkiv National um, Theater um, that they use in their videos. And actually these videos are, are online and you could Google Alpha Alpha or Chernobrytsi or any of these. And it's, it's like a thing, right? That the, they're at, at all festivals and you'll see them. And what's interesting too is now there are so many spinoff groups that, that you could name easily 20 Afro-Ukrainian groups and they'll be performing at weddings and, and um, at parties and on festivals and everything else. Now, the the flip side of that, and again, we're as scholars, we're always looking at, okay, well, what is, what is the, the catch with this? The catch is that there is still no room per se for Africans to be African. In Ukraine. By that I mean, we are not celebrating, um, Ugandan. I, we are more and more so, but we're not really, um, accepting fully, um, these diaspora communities, which are really growing exponentially in Ukraine. Um, Afro-Ukrainian, no problem, right? So you're, you're an embroidery. And so the, the, the message seems to be, 
okay, if you are supporting us in our struggle against Russia or whatever, whatever the political issues are, um, if you're learning Ukrainian, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to assimilate in some way, then, um, then the acceptance is very high. Um, more research absolutely needs to be done in African communities that, you know, that are not necessarily engaging in this particular, uh, discourse to this extent as these, uh, at these, as these particular musicians are. And this actually goes beyond the, um, just these African musicians because you also have in the book, uh, some, uh, images, one from Focus magazine that has, um, representative migrants from Asia, the Middle East, and Africa wearing Ukrainian embroidered shirts. So this idea that um, um, we're all Ukrainians, we can all be Ukrainian no matter where we come from and, and, or what we look like is really fascinating. It was was unexpected to me uh, to see that public at, at assimilation almost. And to, to the to your point about the embroideries, so yeah, so so that's a very powerful image again of all different type of migrants wearing this embroidered shirt. That embroidered shirt is a very stereotypical non-regional one that's now made factory mass produced um, and can be purchased by about for about fifty dollars on um, you know on the market or, or in a in a store. Uh, when you're looking at embroidery per se and what what it actually really is, I mean it really is a localizing uh, type of uh, discourse where you can actually identify somebody, you know, down to the village based on the patterns that they have on their embroidery. And the idea is that the woman usually embroiders for her wedding, you know, her, the patterns of, of, of her uh, local region. So, so there's a lot to unpack there. Even the fact that everybody now in, in all of these uh, performances is actually wearing this like generic, um, more, it would be more close to central Ukrainian um, type of embroidery um, with jeans, which is also interesting. It's only the shirt really that becomes the, the iconic type of thing, right? The jeans represent cosmopolitanism. And now that we're part of, we're moving towards Europe, uh, but with a sense of who we are and this, this kind of like pan, not really quite sure to how to understand that, that type of embroidery. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So much more even, I think your book actually asks almost as many questions as um, answers. (laughs) Which is great. I Which think is good. Yeah, it's really exciting because it, it opens up so many um, uh, ways of thinking and uh, about identity, about the role of music in um, cultural identification and how uh, different groups um, are appropriating, in some ways, both the Ukrainians and the Africans are appropriating this African-American um, Right. Identity, uh, which is just really fascinating. At the end of your book, though, you you finish your book by going to Uganda, where several of these African hip hop artists in Ukraine in Ukraine actually came from. Why was it important to you to go back to go to Africa to see where these um, uh, musicians had migrated from? And what did you learn? So one of the things um, about 
Africa, and again, I'm saying this in quotes, is that there is a constant reference to Africa among Ukrainians. And it's a fascinating thing to me um, to have seen the way different generations talk about Africa. And they, they'll use it as, as um, in, in, in conversation to refer uh, as, as a comparative thing about economics or politics, usually in a negative way, right? So, oh, we are now like Africa, meaning uh, usually that, that would be sort of in a reference to the economic situation in Ukraine, which is which definitely was extremely bad, right, in the 1990s, especially when everything was falling apart. But that reference uh, actually is from Soviet discourse, and that is that idea of development um, and the reaching out. And so when we started looking actually, uh, you know, into cartoons and representations of Africa, Africa is always considered uh, to be an island. There are usually no people on this island. There are animals um, and, you know, these, these uh, representations of Africans are caricatures that are really very much similar to the minstrel stereotypes that we see in uh in African American uh, in in uh in our American history. So that to me was 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 interesting again that that constant conflation and the 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 layering of the his, of the historical narratives. Um what's interesting though is that the older people in Ukraine um have this very strong um, narrative of friendship of the peoples. So they'll say these things, right? But there's no, you, you don't actually, it's, it's not a, it's not a racist, it's hard to say, it's not like a violent racist statement. When you compare to the younger uh, people, sometimes it was actually almost shocking, the things that they would say, right? There's, they're repeating stereotypes that, um, are usually, uh, geared towards African-Americans. Um, and again, it's coming out of movies, it's coming out of music, it's coming out of pop culture that started to infiltrate um, Ukraine. And again, most people have really never met a black person, right? It, it, these are all sort of imagined things that are coming out of media. Um, and I'm actually wondering if you could just restate your 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 question because I there's there's so much to say about this so I don't want to uh, why I actually went back to Africa it really just uh, for me I really just wanted to see why in particular a anybody would migrate to Ukraine right at the time right all the political instability the economic instability but also to see why what was it about the Ukrainian narrative that they were latching on to like why does this exist in ukraine and not in russia why doesn't it re and, and again sort of the passion that people speak with from the african side about this uh you know ukrainian experience and and that experience particularly in uganda when um you know you really realize um a discrimination against language right so there are different tribal uh politics and and certain languages are uh, taken off the radio or not allowed to be seen. So that's, of course, the history of Ukrainian in a nutshell. Um, and the, you know, the first, the policies under the czar and then under the Soviet Union and, and you know, all these kinds of layerings. Um, and so that's why they're rapping in Ukrainian versus Russian. And that's a very important thing to, to note that they could be making a hell of a lot more money if they're rapping in Russian, but they are not. Um, and the second is um, this idea of famine, 
Um, so the history of eastern Eastern Ukraine is very much tied to the Holodomor, which is only now really coming um, to be part of the the more well-known narrative of this particular region with regards to the history of collectivization. So uh, in the 1930s, you know, how many millions of peasants died for the greater good of the state as the Soviet uh, Union was taking the grain. And when you're looking at Africa, uh, and, you know, again, these these stereotypes uh, with certain regions, um, they had mentioned a lot this idea of... um, resources being taken from uh, these particular regions by colonial powers um, and and sort of that that struggle to regain agency in history and in economics and in in the power over their own resources and I want to actually can change um, perhaps a little abruptly to for an almost last question in that you have already mentioned that you grew up in the Ukrainian diaspora in the United States. So going back to Ukraine and researching as someone of, uh, from the diaspora, how did that, um, you talk in the book how that impacted um, both positively and perhaps negatively access uh, the way that Ukrainians related to you, uh, but also how did that influence the way you thought about the African diaspora in Ukraine because you have your own diaspora experience? So diaspora is something that I, I can commiserate with. So anybody who, you know, is growing up in a situation somewhere else, I feel it. I feel you, you know, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of um, stories that aren't told. And I feel now like looking back at all of this, and this is now 20 years that I've been an ethnomusicologist doing ethnographic work in Ukraine. I can finally say that I understand my family's story. I understand, um, you know, very, uh, a very interesting conflict that we had that, uh, you know, my father's family was from a village. My my mother's family was from the city, um, you know, intellectuals. So there's that that was in the family. Um, and then my father had a German last name. Uh, so they are the ones who had to uh, basically run away from the Soviets um, because they would have been accused of having been on the other side, right? For, for, because of this German last name, my mother's side was very politically active. They were the ones who were in the underground and had to leave for those reasons. Then the loss of relatives and all of that stuff. Um, so when you're looking at that and growing up in a household with those types of un, un, um, unarticulated anxieties, I think you can, uh, put that um, there's a lot that you can connect with with when when these stu- when these students are actually you know away from their families and that longing and I was older than them already as I'm doing my research so sometimes I was in this mother role with them other times um, I was the therapist right so that's a big part of the ethno- ethnographic experience how do you listen to these you know, often very sad stories um, and and have that emotional distance, but also that emotional strength to be there to listen and to then come back. 
with regard to my own experience, though, the diaspora that I was in was this post-World War II, very specific, that they were trying to recreate Ukraine. And the idea initially was that they were going to go back. So it's a little bit different from the diasporas now um, after 1991, since Ukraine uh, has been independent. Um, My mother had a travel agency. And so this travel agency specialized on reuniting family members, um, bringing people who were often very afraid to go back um, to, to just visit their um, their family homes. So that's actually where I learned, you know, these, these ways of cr- creating images, marketing a country that didn't exist, right? My mother was marketing Ukraine in 1978 when, when far from it, um, this, this idea of what Ukraine is now was, was actually existing. And I feel like part of that whole travel agency, actually very many, very many people know this travel agency. It was called Scope Travel. Um, they, I've actually, she used to put us on the covers of these travel magazines and I've seen people's put these covers in, uh, you know, hanging on people's homes here in the United States. So going back there, I just always knew that my identity was going to be fluid, that this was something that I would change. Sometimes I would accent that I would have a German last name. Sometimes they thought I was from Poland. Sometimes I spoke Ukrainian. Sometimes I spoke Russian. It just depended what people wanted to see. And one thing I realized is that people will look at you and they will find in you what they want to see. It's not so much about what you're trying to project but they will tell you on what, uh, and they will connect with you in that aspect of your identity that they feel most comfortable with. Hmm. That's really interesting. And um, I enjoy as much hearing about the scholars experience of doing research as about talking to the book. And so I appreciated that you included that in the book. Right. You have a separate book, uh, that's an edited volume, Hip Hop at Europe's Edge, Music Agency and Social Change, which includes uh, chapters on hip hop in um, Estonia, Slovakia, Slovenia, I think, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Albania. So this is quite Albania. an interesting volume. Uh, can you tell us some about this and how, how this volume came to be and, and what are some of the, the common themes and some differences of, in the way that hip hop is um, being generated uh, throughout this um, sort of region of Eastern Europe? Right. So one thing that I, I would like to say is first, the idea initially after, you know, you write a book and you get tenure and, you know, it is an edited volume. I had initially wanted to um, to translate my uh, hip hop Ukraine book into Ukrainian. Unfortunately, that's when this second revolution hit and the people I was interviewing were actually in the middle of these violent, um, you know, the, the cities where most violence was. So we decided that, you know, we didn't want to actually bring more attention to them in Ukraine, in, in Ukrainian. But uh, this this book, Hip Hop Ukraine, is actually readily available as a PDF. I send it to students in Ukraine all the time. So if there is somebody that's listening that maybe wouldn't want, wouldn't be able to afford it, I'm happy to, to share it that way. So this other book, um, as I was looking for translators, actually, to help me with this uh, Hip Hop Ukraine book, um, a friend of mine reached out, uh, Miłosz Mischinski, who is a scholar out of Poland, and he's a sociologist, and he had just put out a call 
for hip hop at Europe's edge. And so the, the full title is hip hop at Europe's edge music agency and um, social change. And so many scholars responded uh, with submissions that he asked me to help him co-edit. So this is, this is his baby. And my contribution to this is really just um, from the musicological side and having also um, had experience researching hip hop, I became one of the editors, not so much for conceptual, but also for language. And one of the um, challenges for this book is that every single scholar is either uh, very, from the region we really stress that or somebody who has spent an extremely amount, a long amount of time in, in these particular countries. So we have everything from Russia to Albania to Bosnia, Herzegovina, as you said, and we didn't want to um, do it geographically, right? So this isn't like chapter by chapter. It's, it's really uh, based on country. It's conceptual, right? So it's ideas of violence. It's idea of, of cosmopolitanism, of capitalism, of blackness, you know, how all these uh, uh, tropes are circulated in Eastern Europe. Um, very, very broadly defined also because, you know, we actually, we had quite a bit of time <laughs> settling on this title because at Europe's edge really sends the wrong message. We are not really talking about, um, right. It, it kind of has this, this, uh, you know, we we're like at looking into Europe, but that's really not the message. Uh, we just went through hundreds of versions of this title. The idea really is that, um, you know, all of these things are very, very fluid. People are moving. Ideas are moving. Technologies are moving. And uh, there's a claim for authenticity, right? So it's Siberia. It's not Siberians appropriating African-American genres or trying to be African-American, right? They are using it for their own purposes, making their own interpretations of it, and also based on the technology that's available um, and based on their own um, aesthetic appeals. Yeah, that was one thing I really appreciated about this edited volume is that it's not just a country by country summary or survey, that it really is looking conceptually at the the way that hip hop is being utilized um, in these spaces. So part one is hip hop post-socialism and democracy. Part two, hip hop and emerging market economies. Part three, hip hop on the margins, which is where there's some of the um, violence and uh, some of those issues. And then part four, hip hop and global circulations of blackness. So it really um, takes a lot of themes that come up in your book and then can draws them out to see how they are playing out in all of these yeah. various places. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So as a final yeah, question, oh, go ahead. Were you going to say mm-hmm. something else? Uh, I just wanted to comment actually on the English in this volume, because one of the challenges was also um, active voice versus passive voice. And you speak Slavic languages, so you know that (laughs) someone has somewhere done something, right? And it's implied, so action is implied and and, uh, (laughs) um, subjectivity is also implied. So this was actually, we went a lot of back and forth in terms of uh, editors with Indiana University Press. And I have to commend Indiana University Press for being so um, open to all these different ways of presenting. Like, for instance, with Hip Hop Ukraine, they have the multimedia um, websites where all these videos are available. And with um, Hip Hop at Europe's Edge, 
um, they really allowed us to be very true to the language of these authors. So we are, you know, there's global English, right? People are expressing themselves um, in the way that they wish to be expressed. And we did not really change much of this to try to fit this very much into sort of an, an American standard of, of what that might be for what a book might be. And I'm glad that you mentioned the multimedia. We'll link to that in the uh blog post description that accompanies the podcast so that people can go and look at the videos. Cause I think that's a really important part of this book mm-hmm. is also being able to see the performances and hear the music. Well, mm-hmm. this has been fascinating. And as a final question, what are you working on now? So uh, remember the story of when I was in Ukraine uh, researching Romani music at the time of the Orange Revolution, and that's when I came across these musicians. So I never had a chance to publish my dissertation because of the political situation in Ukraine at the time. Um, it, It just would have really created a lot of stress for the people that I was working with. Um, So actually, initially, I had thought that I wouldn't really even be able to go into academia because if you can't publish your dissertation, well, you you just can't, right? Um, I I was very lucky that I was able to have another project that just sort of unfolded itself for me. But now, after about 15 years and having taught Romani music, I have a study abroad program uh, that runs with students out of the University of Pittsburgh uh, with Charles University in Prague, where we take students um, to Romani music festivals and we do research with them um, in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, And, you know, many, many uh, articles later, I'm actually now writing the Romani book um, with the title of Romani Music and Development Aid because I was very active with the non-governmental organization and very proud to say that after 15 years, we actually now have a Romani program uh, in Ukraine. There are radio programs geared towards issues for Romani women, uh, right? So there's there's many, many things now that I can write about. And it's been interesting to see the two generations. So I remember all of their parents. And now it's the younger uh, generation that benefited from all of that work that has taken over. So I'll be writing their story. Well, that sounds like an equally fascinating book, and Mm -hmm. I look forward to hopefully talking to you, and I'm not sure when it's going to come out, year, two years, five years, (laughs) at whatever point. No, no, soon. Oh, good. good. So we will get you on the list to come back um, when the book comes out, because I'm sure that will be an equally um, interesting conversation. Well, yeah, and I have to say that scholars usually beat themselves up when they say, oh, I'm not writing, I haven't written it. And I have to say that the book will come when you're ready to write it. And I've just learned that you can't rush this, and now is the time to write this, and it will, it will happen very quickly. Yeah, I think that's good advice, that there are times um, that something just is, it's not the right time, and that idea might have to be shelved but it doesn't mean it's not mm-hmm. going to come back in the future as you are very well demonstrating. <laughs> so great. Right. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed the book and uh, I always find these conversations uh, a lot of fun because I learned from something new, even in the conversation, having already read the book. So I really appreciate right. this. And uh, thank you again for being a part of our new books network podcast series. Thank you very much for having me. And again, any student out there that's uh, wishing to know more about this, please reach out to me at the University of Pittsburgh. 
Great. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today and stay tuned for next month's conversation about a new book in Russian and Eurasian studies. 